Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us and that you would send your Holy Spirit to us today so that we would follow your word as we wait patiently for the salvation that is coming to us in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue looking at the Lord Jesus' prayer just before he goes to the cross. He has been having a last meal with his disciples. He's been giving them some final instructions. And then we have this magnificent prayer of the Lord Jesus as he comes before God and prays for himself. Then he prays for the disciples. And then he prays for those who would believe in due course. And so last week we looked at his prayer uh, for himself and the glory that he he is seeking for the Father and for himself. And we looked at the subject of eternal life and what it means to know God and that that is eternal life. And this morning we move on to the second section of the prayer, which is his prayer for the disciples. And that consists of verses 6 through to verse 19. And it's interesting as we look at these verses together that there's actually very few requests made of the Lord Jesus to his Father. He doesn't ask for a lot of things. Instead, most of the prayer is actually describing himself and describing the disciples. If you were to go through it this afternoon, it'd be an interesting exercise for you to actually look at how many times does he actually ask God for something and how often is he just describing uh, different aspects of the disciples and their relationship with him. So I wanted this morning, as we look at this prayer together, to focus primarily on what he is asking for, one thing in particular that he asks for, and also to note what he does not pray for. What does Jesus not pray for his disciples is the first thing I want to look at, and we see that in verse 15. Verse 15, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus is very clear to point out something that he refuses to pray for his disciples. And what is that? That they would be taken out of the world. Now, why is this noteworthy? Well, it's because when we consider the world's hostility towards the disciples, it seems like a natural idea that the best thing for his disciples would be a complete removal from this world. And Jesus has been very clear that the world is hostile to the disciples. Even the verse just before that, verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has loved them. No, the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And if you go back to chapter, 16, uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And then it goes on to speak of the world's hostility to the disciples. And so it seems like a very good idea would be simply take the disciples out of the world. If you want them to be safe, then just remove them from this world. But the Lord Jesus refuses to pray that. He makes a very specific comment there in verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. And hasn't this been the desire that we have had in our hearts? That we would just simply be taken to heaven. It's a natural desire that we would simply either die if suffering's too much or that Christ would come back and take us away. But the Lord Jesus refuses to do this. And the Lord, and the Lord himself has refused to do this on occasions in the scriptures. There have been occasions where great men of God have asked, please put me to death. And what does God do? No, he leaves them. He refuses the request and continues to give them life in this world. What are examples of this? Well, Moses is an example. Moses in Numbers chapter 11, if you want to read a book where you see a lot of people grumbling and complaining, it's the book of Numbers. And it got to Moses, a great man of God, Moses himself. And he said in Numbers chapter 11, verse 13, 
Where can I get meat for all these people? They were wanting meat. And he says, they keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. What's the solution? If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. Moses' request was, put me to death. Take me away from these grumbling people. Did God put him to death that day? No. Moses continued to live with those people in the desert for many years to come. And Elijah's another example. Elijah performs a great miracle. Well, God does it through him of fire falling from heaven. Then Jezebel, the king's wife, says, you're going to die. I'm going to make sure you die. And Elijah runs away. And then we read in 1 Kings chapter 19, what does Elijah, this great man of God, say? I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He makes this request, this prayer request. Take me out of this world. Take my life. I've had enough. And Jonah's another example, uh, where when the sun rises as he's preached in Nineveh and a scorching, heat, uh, scorching wind comes, it says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 8, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Now, when you've got some sunburn, what do you want to do? Well... Some of us want to just get in the shade. But it says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 8, he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. He wanted to die. He desired to leave this world because of the sunshine. It's a common idea that we want to get out of this world. And we see even Moses, Elijah, and Jonah requested it. But God refused their request. Now, why would God refuse their request? Why would Jesus refuse to pray that we would be taken out of this world? Why would he say in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world? Well, there's many reasons, but I'll give you one this morning. It's the idea of work. The idea of work. Why did Jesus save us? Why did Jesus save people from their sins? Why does he make Christians? Why does he call people to himself? Well, it's for service. You read a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, which speaks about how we are saved, that it's all by God's grace. And then what do we read in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God saved us so that we would serve him, so that we would work for him. He saved Moses so that he would work. He saved Elijah so that he would work. He saved Jonah from the sea. Why? So that he would serve God. Not so that he would be removed. And so the idea of when our sufferings are too great, we want to be removed from this world, what does that really say about us? It says that we're being disrespectful to our master as his servants. We want to end our service because it's all too much for us which is a disrespectful thing to do to a master. There's an illustration in church history that I think brings this out very well. It's a bit of a long illustration. I don't like to read a lot in sermons, uh, but this one I've been sitting on for a few years. I read it many years ago. 
And it's about George Whitfield, who was a great preacher of the gospel, uh, both in uh, the UK and in the United States. He tripped back and forth, and large revivals were seen under his ministry. Uh, but of course, he, he worked very, very hard uh, in preaching the gospel. And while he was in North America, he met up with a bunch of other ministers, and one of them was uh, a guy called uh, Tennant, uh, and he, uh, Gilbert Tennant, and he was a Presbyterian minister, and he also was used by God to preach the gospel, and many people came to faith through him as well. And so basically, these two men met, and they had good fellowship with one another, and they also had some fellowship with uh, some other ministers, and this conversation is conveyed to us in one of the writings about them. And so I'm going to read it out, and I think it's really helpful in illustrating the way that we're meant to understand our place in this world. It says, when the late Reverend George Whitfield was last in this country, that's the United States, this is in the 1700s, I should put some historical context there, 1700s, Mr. Tennant paid him a visit as he was passing through New Jersey. So you've got George Whitfield coming in and Mr. Tennant's the Presbyterian minister who lives in the States. And it was in New Jersey that they met up. Mr. Whitfield and a, mem a number of other clergymen, among whom was Mr. Tennant, were invited to dinner by a gentleman in the neighbourhood with several other lay gentlemen. After dinner, in the course of an easy and pleasant conversation, Mr. Whitfield adverted to the difficulties attending the gospel ministry, arising from the small success with which their labours were crowned. He greatly lamented that all their zeal, activity and fervour availed but little said that he was weary with the burdens and fatigues of the day and declared his great consolation was that in a short time his work would be done when he should depart and be with Christ, that the prospect of a speedy deliverance had supported his spirits or that he should before now have sunk under his labour. So you can see where the conversation's going, these, these uh, ministers getting together, they had a nice meal together and Mr Whitfield is talking about how hard it is to be a preacher of the gospel and how little fruit he sees and the way that it sustains him, and I go, this guy, he saw much fruit from his labours. But the thing that sustained him was thinking about, one day I will be called home, and I'm looking forward to putting away my Bible and going to the Lord, that I will no longer be called upon to preach the gospel as I have been. What does the rest of the group say, as uh, Whitfield is sharing this? They generally assented, accepting Mr Tennant, this Presbyterian minister who sat next to Mr. Whitfield in silence, and by his countenance discovered but little pleasure in the conversation, on which Mr. Whitfield, turning to him and tapping him on the knee, said, Well, Brother Tennant, you are the oldest man amongst us. Do you not rejoice to think that your time is so near at hand when you will be called home and freed from all the difficulties attending this checkered scene? Mr. Tennant bluntly answered, I have no wish about it. Mr. Whitfield pressed him again, and Mr. Tennant again answered, No, sir, it is no pleasure to me at all, and if you knew your duty, it would be none to you. I have nothing to do with death. My business is to live as long as I can, as well as I can, and to serve my Lord and Master as faithfully as I can until he shall think proper to call me home. Mr. Whitfield still urged for an explicit answer to his question in case the time of death were left to his own choice. Mr. Tennant replied, I have no choice about it. I am God's servant and have engaged to do his business as long as he pleases to continue me therein. But now, brother, let me ask you a question. 
What, this is Mr Tennant asking Whitfield a question. What do you think I would say if I was to send my man Tom into the field to plough? And if at noon I should go out into the field and find him lounging under a tree and complaining, Master, the sun is very hot and the ploughing hard and difficult. I am tired and weary of the work you have appointed me and am overdone with the heat and burden of the day. Do, Master, let me return home and be discharged from this hard service. What would I say? Why, that he was an idle, lazy fellow, that it was his business to do the work that I had appointed him until I, the proper judge, should think fit to call him home. Or suppose you had hired a man to serve you faithfully for a given time in a particular service, and he should, without any reason on your part, and before he had performed half his service, became weary of it, and upon every occasion be expressing a wish to be discharged or placed in other circumstances. Would you not call him a wicked and slothful servant, and unworthy of the privileges of your employ. The mild, pleasant, and Christian-like manner in which this reproof was administered rather increased the social harmony and edifying conversation of the company, who became satisfied that it was very possible to err, even in desiring with undue earnestness to depart and be with Christ, which in itself is far better than to remain in this imperfect state, and that it is the duty of the Christian in this respect to say, all the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Now it is true, the Apostle Paul said, it is better by far to depart and be with Christ. But there is a way of sinning in desiring it in a wrongful way, particularly if it springs from cowardice or laziness in our service to God. We don't want to serve him anymore because it just is too hard whereas we've forgotten the privilege that it is to be in service at all of the Master in heaven. And so we should be willing to live out all our days in service of him and to not hasten the day where we go home unduly. And so that's what we see in the Lord Jesus here in his prayer in John chapter 17, verse 15. I think this is one of the reasons why he prays that we would not be taken out of the world that when we desire to even have this idea of I should be removed from the world in some way, not that I would go to a monastery, but, and not that I would go to heaven, I don't call upon God to put me to death, but I'd just like to be around less of the idiots of the world. I'd like to spend more time with Christians. I'll fill my weekends with Christians. I'll fill my days and my evenings with Christians. And if I can get a Christian job, that would be really good. What are we doing? We're wanting to be taken out of the world in a way as well. Not that we want to necessarily be called home immediately, but we would like to spend less time around the world. But the Christ's refusal here to pray for our removal should caution us against praying for it too. So what does Jesus pray for his disciples? We see in verse 15 what he does not pray for. What does he pray for? Well, we see that in verse 15 as well. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The Lord prays for our protection. What does he want us protected from? Well, it's from evil. And the translation before us takes that as the evil one, Satan. And that's a valid translation. And of course, all evil, we understand, comes from Satan back in the garden as he led our first parents astray. And so we understand that evil is a great danger for us as we look at Christ's prayer. 
Why is evil so dangerous for us? Why was the Lord, would the Lord Jesus pray for this? And we even praise for it really realistically again in one of the only other requests he makes for his disciples in verse 17. What does he pray there? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What is sanctification? It's where we're being set apart and usually in the sense of moral holiness, that there's this purity that we have if we are holy people. God wants us to be protected from evil. He wants us to be sanctified, set apart from evil. Why is evil so dangerous? Why is the evil one so dangerous? Well, he tempts us into evil. And evil, of course, comes with eternal consequences. Much of the things that we would like to be protected from in this world are temporal consequences. When we want to have our bodies protected, it's a temporal protection that we're after. Whereas evil is the real danger. Evil is a real danger. Why? Because it has eternal consequences. So it's interesting how the Lord Jesus prays here, not for our protection from suffering, which is what we like to pray for a lot. He wants us protected from the evil one and from the temptations of evil, which come with eternal consequences. And we see this is the warning that is given again and again in Scripture of the danger of the evil one. We can get complacent about the evil one and about evil itself. And we're far more concerned about a a sore leg or a pricked finger than we are about evil. But the Bible warns us again and again of the danger of Satan and the evil that comes through the temptations of Satan. If we just look back to Genesis 3, right there in the beginning, there's a strict warning to us that as our parents sinned, we face similar temptations, or even worse. When you consider the circumstances of the temptation of Adam and Eve, they were in paradise. They wanted for nothing. And they did not have a sinful inclination in them towards sin. What are we in? We're in the world. We're around evil people all the time. And then we have a sinful inclination in us. Our flesh is still there. And it has that inclination towards evil. And so we need to be aware that we need protection from the evil one. And Job, that passage that we had read for us before, reminds us of the danger of Satan and the temptation to evil as physical circumstances are hurt in our lives, the attacks of the evil one come upon us. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, reminds us of the dangers of the evil one as well in that famous passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's turn to to it now, Ephesians chapter 6. Page 1160, page 1160, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul is very much aware of the danger of the evil one and how we need protection. Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll read from verse 10, page 1160. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then verse 11. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Not against suffering, but against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're in great danger, but we think that flesh and blood is our problem. But we have a great danger of the evil one and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Verse 13, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then what does he instruct us to do in verse 18 after we put on this armour of God? That's it? No, verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And then he asks for prayer for himself as well, which shows a connection back to what does the, what does the Lord Jesus pray for in John chapter 17? He prays for our protection. He prays for our protection from the evil one. And so we see consistently through scripture that we are to be protected from the evil one. That is our great need, not from the physical suffering that we often care so much about. And so we've got two extremes, really, in John chapter 17, verse 15. As we look at the prayer of the Lord Jesus there about what he doesn't pray for and what he does pray for, what is the thing that he refuses to pray for? Segregation from the world. He doesn't want us segregated from the world. He wants us in the world. But what's the other danger that we need to pray about then? It's that we would be integrated into the world, that we would embrace the evil one and the evil that comes along. We want to be careful that we don't get segregated out of the world, but that we also don't get integrated into the world. We need to avoid a sinful discontent with our Lord's decision to keep us serving in the snake pit. That's the picture that's given for us of Satan often, is that he's a snake, and that's what we're in. We're in a snake pit in this world. But the Lord wants us in the snake pit, and we should not be discontented and want to get out before our service is done in the snake pit. But on the other hand, we also need to be aware that we need protection from the snake and not be content to be bitten by the snake and to be content to have his poison flowing through our veins of evil. No, we need to be in the middle, working in the snake pit, not getting out of it unduly, but also not being content to be friends with the snake and to embrace the poison that he would love to give to our veins. And so we're in a very difficult position, aren't we? We're in a very difficult position. Part of us wants to get out, and then part of us wants to embrace being there. We need to be in the middle, not wanting to get out, but not wanting to embrace the snake. It's a difficult position, but thankfully, what do we have? We have the Lord Jesus. And what is he doing? He's interceding on our behalf. Not so that we'll be removed, but so that we'll be protected from evil and the evil one. He's interceding for us, not just for the apostles. This prayer that we have here in John chapter 17 appears to be deliberately for the apostles, but we know that the Lord Jesus does intercede for us as well, even though the apostles are long gone. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we read, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives. He lives to do what? To intercede for them. For those that are saved, he lives to intercede for them. And he's successful in his work. We read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, that's the Lord Jesus, keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. The evil one cannot harm him. Jesus makes sure that we're safe. Not from suffering. And he doesn't pray that our suffering will be eased immediately and we'll be saved from the evil one by being taken out of this world but that he does pray for our protection from the evil one and from the evil that he would like us to commit. And we see the answer to this prayer all the time. We see the Lord's faithfulness in praying and 
God's response to his prayer in granting him what he asks for. Where? Well, in our own lives. I just look at my own life and I continue to be amazed that I don't fall into more sin, into more evil than I already do. It's incredible when I understand how bad my heart is, that I'm not a far greater sinner than I see my heart would love to be. Why is that? It's because the Lord Jesus is interceding for me. He's interceding for Joel Radford and saying, protect him from the evil one. And then when I do sin, what do I see? I see an answer to Christ's prayer as well. Why? Because he leads me to repentance. He grants me repentance of the sin that I've committed so that the evil one cannot touch me because when I repent of my sin, my sin is forgiven and the evil one cannot make any accusation against me for the sin that I've done because Christ Jesus has paid the penalty at the cross. I see the answer to Christ's prayer all the time, that I'm protected from the evil one, protected in the fact that he keeps me from sin that my heart would love to commit and he also keeps me from the evil one by the repentance that he grants me so the evil one cannot touch me because my sin is paid for in Christ Jesus. It's wonderful that we have the Lord Jesus continually interceding for us. Protect us. Protect them from the evil one is what he's praying for us. So how do we respond to Christ's intercession that we hear of this morning? Well, firstly, we need to be careful with desires and prayers to be taken from the world. We need to fear the sin of discontent, of discontent in this world. Are you guilty of laziness and cowardice in the fight, in the service that the Lord has given you? Are you guilty of it? Confess such laziness and cowardice even now. If you have desired to be taken from this world and it's sprung from a desire to be just removed from the work that God has given you, confess it to him now, repent of it now and ask for forgiveness. What's another response that we could have? I've got four for you this morning. First one is to be careful with desires and prayers to be taken out of the world. The second is thank God, thank Christ for his prayer for us. His prayer, protect them from the evil one. Do you rejoice that Christ Jesus prays powerfully for you and have you thanked him as a result? When was the last time you thanked Christ Jesus for interceding for you? Thank him for paying for your sins? Yes, he did that a long time ago. Yes. What's he doing for you now? He's interceding at God's right hand for you. Protect them from the evil one is what he's praying. When was the last time you thanked him for his prayers? Another response? Well, it would be to follow his example and pray the prayer that he prays. Pray that the Lord would protect us and other believers from the evil one. We mustn't grow complacent about the evil one and the danger of evil. We should be praying against the temptations of the evil one. And we see that in the Lord's Prayer. If you pray the Lord's Prayer with any regularity, what do you pray? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or deliver us from evil. This is a prayer we need to pray. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He prayed it himself, protection from the evil one. And he prays and he instructs his disciples to pray for such deliverance as well. That's the third thing we can do. First thing is, be careful with desires to be taken from this world. Second thing is, thank Jesus for his prayers of intercession. Third thing is that we should pray for our protection from the evil one. Another response, warn unbelievers of the dangers of the evil one. 
Do you warn unbelievers that Christ does not intercede for them? If you're an unbeliever and you're here this morning, do you realise that you're in the snake pit? And the snake has already bitten you. If you're an unbeliever, he has already bitten you. And his poison flows in your veins. And the Lord Jesus does not pray for you. If you resist him, if you continue in your unbelief, he does not pray for your protection. He says specifically in this passage that he does not pray for the world. He prays for believers. What are you to do? Come to Christ. Come to Christ now. Come to him and trust in him and beg that he would intercede to God for your protection. Realise what a dangerous position you are in. The snake has befriended you and his poison is lethal, not just for this world but for all of eternity. Come to Christ and ask for his protection. Ask him to give you the shield of faith. The shield of faith so that you're protected from the evil ones attacked. Ask him to protect you from the poison that is already flowing through your veins. To give you the antidote, which is his blood. He gives you a blood transfusion that overcomes the poison of sin. The poison of evil that's in you. So that you will live not just through this world, but live eternally in heaven with Christ Jesus. Come to Christ. Ask him, protect me from the evil one. And if you come with sincerity of heart, he never turns away those who come to him, who want his protection. And then he prays for your protection. He lives to intercede for his people. And if you're one of his people, he will live to intercede for you so that the snake does not bother you again. And if he does and you fall into evil, you can repent and know that you have the antidote again and that the evil one has no control over you. Come to Christ. Ask him for protection before it is too late. Let's come to Christ Jesus now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your kindness in praying for us. We thank you for the protection that you, you give us through the prayers that you make to the Father himself. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the discontent and the wrongful desires to be taken from our service. Oh Lord, we are created in you to do good works, which you have prepared in advance for us to do. But so often, oh Lord, the flesh screams out and we want to be taken from our service. Oh Lord, forgive us for such wrongful desires. And help us to be content in our labours and to recognise the privilege it is to serve the Almighty God. And help us to pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is not yours, who continues in unbelief, oh Lord, we ask that you would grant them faith even now. Help them to understand that you are the Son of God and that you are the one who saves from evil. And so, Lord, we pray that they would come and know the salvation that you bring. And so, Lord, we pray that they would come under your divine protection and intercession. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.